This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today, we begin with a couple of big corporate takeovers and how they might impact us as consumers. We'll be getting to the Rogers bid for Shaw soon, but first... Let's get the groceries. Sobey's parent company, Empire, has reached an agreement to buy 51% of the independent grocery chain Longo's and its online grocery gateway in a deal worth $357 million. Now, this company started in 1956 with a single fruit cart. Just keep that in mind. People love it. People love Longos because it is somewhat unique. Now, the brass at Empire promise they won't mess with it. And I uh, haven't heard them say anything about what's going to happen to the prices, but I can tell you I've heard that before when it comes to mergers. I'd like to hear from you if you have thoughts, 416-360-0740, toll-free one 866 740-4740. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. What is your first reaction to this deal? I wasn't surprised. Um, sadly, I mean, I actually know the Longo's uh, company. I know Anthony Longo, the the CEO, uh, Mike, his brother, uh, Gus Donko. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible uh, family business. The, the culture there is amazing. Um, but times are tough for independent grocers. That's, that's the reality. And I suspect that, uh, that the Longo family had some really tough conversation about the future of the business. Uh, and I don't know how the deal happened, but I, I, my guess is that as they were looking at the, the market, uh, and the competition, they felt perhaps it was time to, uh, to, to do something. And so when, when Sobeys came along with an offer, they, they decided to accept. Sobeys is, is a, again, a, a wonderful grocer, a very responsible grocer. Uh, it recognizes that there are tensions within the supply chain, especially when it comes to processing. As you know, probably there's, there's a lot of supply chain bullying going on uh, with, with Loblaw, Walmart, charging fees. Independent grocers can't do that, uh, and Sobeys has recognized that it, it, it's gone too far, and which is why it's advocating for a code of conduct between grocers and 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 uh, and suppliers. But in the meantime, of course, independent grocers will have to think about their future. So, and that's probably why yesterday we were learning that uh, Longos was was going to be part of the Empire family. Uh- I, I want to get into that. It's, uh, you know, you, you, you're talking about, uh, bullying in the supply chain, but this, this is going to make it harder for independent grocers because at least they used to have longos, uh, in terms of, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, volume, uh, you know, uh, buying power. That's right. Uh, now, Empire buying Longos is actually good news for Longos um, customers. Uh, they may not see it that way right now, but I actually do believe it's good news for them because um, with Sobeys buying powered, it will be able to actually increase margins, and so I don't think prices will going to go up. Uh, and of course, um, if I if I were to pick one buyer for Longos, it certainly would be Empire because Empire has the has the um, I was, I guess, has the responsibility, or as shown in the past, uh, and I'm thinking of Farm Boy here, uh, that it it will honor and protect and be loyal to a brand, to a a company it buys. Um, if if you ask anyone who goes to Farm Boy on a regular basis, uh, they probably wouldn't even notice that it was bought by Sobeys a few years ago. It's still the same experience, same products. And I expect the same at Longos. Um, and uh, you may actually see 
some private label products here and there, of course, which is not what you're seeing right now uh, with Complement, for example, by Sobeys. And, of course, the other thing that may change uh, dramatically is the e-commerce uh, platform. Uh, Longo's uh, pioneered uh, e-commerce, I would say, in Canada, not just in the GTA, but in Canada. Yeah, they've uh, got gr- 70,000 clients or something. It's incredible. It's incredible. And they, ran, they, 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 they were running their own fleet. Uh, since 2002, I believe, they've been actually they've been in the game in the e-commerce game, when, when everyone else uh, was saying, this is just crazy, it's not viable, it's not possible. But now, in 2021, a lot of people are buying food online. And so they'll be able to convert, I suspect, those 70,000 customers and make them uh, voila by Sobe's customers eventually. They didn't say that yesterday, but I'm expecting that to happen. Now, uh, Sylvain, you have me a little worried. So the place that I shop in my neighborhood is, uh, I think it's the largest independent grocery store in Toronto. And it's a one-off. And the adjective that is usually used by people in the neighborhood is beloved. And they've been doing an amazing job throughout the pandemic. And people are always lined up outside there to get in. So are are you telling me that they're going to have a, a harder time in terms of stocking their shelves and, and providing like the wonderful assortment that they always do? Uh, I can tell you that they're, they are having a harder time, not stocking shelves, but in terms of pricing and, and dealing with suppliers. You see, Loblaws, uh, so Walmart, and uh, they can they can actually charge fees to suppliers because they're so powerful and influential. Look at this week's news. Walmart announced uh, that it was closing six stores in Canada, and it was also investing $500 million uh, in in building a new distribution center. Well, guess where that money is coming from? (laughs) It's coming from suppliers. uh, But independent grocers can't do that. They just can't get because they don't have the influence. Longos can't do that, and and the, and the grocery you're talking about can't do that either. Fiesta so Farms, it, giving them a little plug. Exactly. Well, there you go. And uh, I certainly encourage everyone to support your local independent grocer. And if you don't know if it's independent or not, just ask. I mean, there are lots of them. Eighty percent of all the food we buy retail right now is sold by five companies: Loblaw, Sobeys, Metro, Walmart, and Costco. Everything else is independent. The reason why independent grocers are so important, and this is probably why you <laughs> go to your grocer, is because you'll find products you wouldn't find anywhere else. Well, yeah, and, and the freshness. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't vent, but uh, um, there's a Loblaws close by. Um, I find their produce shockingly bad. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, they have a few good things, but I would say yeah. not many. But, I mean, some people actually enjoy going to Loblaws, and they'll be content with, with the produce, and they'll be content with the offering. But some people, some Canadians actually just want some, something different, a, new, a unique experience. They want service. And often in independent grocery stores, the level of service is very personalized. And people love that. Actually, people miss it, especially now since, you know, since the COVID started the last 12 months. I think a lot of people are looking for that human contact. And, and so it's important to recognize that there, there is a problem. So, yes, uh, the deal uh, is done, uh, and and Empire is a responsible company, and it recognizes that some there are some ills within the supply chain. But it also makes me worried uh, seeing Longos um, being bought. Uh, it's just it, it it really begs the question: what what else? What other independent grocers are also going to disappear over the next little while, not only in Toronto, but across the country. Well, yeah, and you know, you mentioned service, and it's one of the things that actually uh, in the fresh produce department, I've actually had conversations with them, and they've recommended sort of one kind of pair over another for cooking something. And and in, in a regular supermarket, you know, there's a very young person usually, and you say, uh, that's parsley. 
<laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And and so this this is the kind of support you get. And uh, and by the way, some people may see a Sobe store and think it's it's part of corporate. Not necessarily, by the way. Uh, Sobe's is a family of a lot of different independent grocers. For example, yes, they have to purchase uh, products from headquarters, but they are allowed at times to to buy local products, locally grown, locally produced products, and they would be the only retailer to carry. So you may actually, from the outside, you may see a, a grocery store that looks corporate, but really it's managed independently, and, and it's also owned by a family as well. So you got to be, you, you really have to ask questions to make sure you know what you're dealing with. And um, a, a final question, should we be prepared for price hikes because of this? Uh, price, the, the, well, <laughs> I better be careful here. And, uh, price hikes that we would not have otherwise seen. No, no, I don't think this acquisition will make any difference. Uh, I, I think prices are going to go up, but not because of this acquisition. Okay. Yeah. Anything else you want to leave us with on this? Well, I, I just want to I, I say thank you to the Longos family because, uh, I mean, they've been around for decades and have supplied food for a lot of people, a lot of us. I, I'm a former Longo shopper myself, and uh, what they've done um, for the industry was amazing. They pioneered on many fronts. And uh, they they've been able to be to 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 run a successful business for many 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 decades. So I just want to thank the Longo family for what they've done uh, in the sector. Okay, Sylvain Charlebois, thank you so much for being with us. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye bye. Uh, we're going to turn now to another merger. And uh, I've got to say, you know, it is getting very hard to be an independent anything these days. And uh, I can tell you that firsthand, we here at Zoomer Media, we are a very rare breed independent broadcasters, which means we're not Bell Media, we're not Rogers. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's tough out there. But uh, the next deal is in a related field, and that's telecom. And it has even more potential to hit us in the pocketbook. Rogers Communications has signed a deal to buy Shaw uh, that's valued at $26 billion including debt. Uh, this would combine Canada's two largest cable companies as well as their wireless network, and it needs approval from several federal agencies. The Conservatives have already staked out territory, saying they will force hearings on the subject uh, to ensure that there's no approval without assurances uh, that prices won't go up. I'm, I'm sure there will be assurances. Uh, the question is, how much are they going to be worth? Uh, so the Liberals also have plenty of cause to be cautious because lowering our telecom bills, which, by the way, are among the highest in the world, is one of their unfulfilled promises. And they also talk about better access for rural and far-flung areas. So, I, I, people, I am going to get to your calls. I'm going to give the numbers again now that we're bringing in the telecom discussion. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 4740. And now I would like to go to Ellen Roseman, who's a consumer advocate and journalist, and Dr. Kernahan Webb, who is associate professor in the Faculty of Law and the Law and Business Program at the Ted Rogers School of Management. Um, welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. My pleasure. Okay, let us begin with Ellen. What do you think when you see uh, this particular deal? I'm really concerned about wireless. That's it, we all live with a phone, a smartphone, a cell phone. It's like uh, you, you can hardly live your life without it. And we have three big players. We've got Bell, Rogers, and TELUS. And they're all more or less equal in terms of the number of customers that they have. But the fourth biggest player is Freedom Mobile, which is owned by Shaw. And if you remember Wind Mobile, uh, Shaw bought that and turned it into Freedom Mobile. And that was always designed to be lower-priced, more accessible, more affordable, uh, not Bell, Rogers, or Telus. Yet it was different, right? It was independent. So um, that is the, has, it's not big. It's in 
three provinces. It's Ontario, Alberta, and BC, and it's only in the major cities. But it's helped create some price competition in wireless that we might not have had. So if the deal goes through, and it has to go through the CRTC, the uh, Competition Bureau, and the federal government, so three different screenings, the result may be that they'll allow a merger, but they might have to spin off a separate company, which would be Freedom Wireless uh, or something like it, to maintain a fourth player, because that's where we really need the competition, and we don't have enough. Our wireless prices are way ahead of other countries. According to the Globe and Mail, they haven't gone up in the last little while, but they're still pretty high, and they've only gone down marginally. So we still need much more competition, and we'd like to see it with at least a fourth player that isn't swallowed up by one of the big three. Okay. Dr. Webb, your take. Well, uh, basically, there is a legal framework uh, within which all of this sort of uh, uh, decision-making takes place, and that uh, is the Competition Act, first of all, and the Competition Act and the Competition Bureau are uh, essentially our first uh, safeguards to ensure that something non-competitive doesn't happen. Uh, the mandate of the Competition Act is to ensure an efficient marketplace while protecting consumers specifically. So that will be one of the first legal uh, structures that has to be addressed with respect to this merger. And then on top of that, there is the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television uh, Commission, and they have also responsibilities over all aspects of telecommunications, and so it'll have to be approved by them as well. And we can expect that in both regards, there will be requirements and conditions put on any merger uh, that would ensure, for example, that investments are made uh, so that we have uh, broadband coverage in rural areas. And uh, as Ellen suggested, quite possibly, it might require a spin-off of uh, some of the assets uh, so that there is some competition. And who knows, they might open things up to uh, foreign uh, uh, competitors and that would certainly shake things up. Well, uh, that certainly would shake things up. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, competition is uh, not necessarily very good for Canadian culture. Ellen, I'm sure that there will be assurances, but uh, what do you think ultimately they're worth? I mean, uh, they've said that they won't raise prices in that freedom uh, for three years. Um, do you believe them? And, and that you know, they keep tinkering with their offerings so much that really it's it's almost impossible to even figure out which package is best for you. Exactly. I think that the average customer just gets overwhelmed with all the choices. You know, there's bring your own phone, there's buying the phone, there's the device subsidies, there's hidden things like you might have a device subsidy for two years. Then when it's paid off, you think, well, that's going to automatically come off your bill. But as I discovered, they keep it on the bill and they wait for you to call them and give them other choices. You know, so it's like you have to opt in to get that off your bill. So they are, the big three are great at bamboozling you with too much choice and they all have their own individual uh, lower cost brands. Uh, and some of them have like five or six brands and you don't realize when you're signing up with Kudo, for example, that it's Telus or Chatter is Rogers. And uh, they create a feeling that there's more competition than there really is. They, they offer lower prices. What we need in Canada and what the CRTC has not yet allowed in wireless, as it has in internet, is giving smaller companies with no investment in infrastructure such as cell towers the ability to uh, piggyback off the big players' networks and compete against them. And the CRTC is looking at it. There's a company that has already uh, started uh, and is just uh, it's called Dot Mobile, and it's waiting for approval for the CRTC to go ahead. Um, and it's, it's like an app, and it uh, has no stores. Uh, it's all virtual, and um, it allows you as a customer, a wireless customer, to only pay for the data you use once the month is over, which is so much better than getting a plan with a certain amount of data because we know that most people don't use the data that they have. 
and they don't have a choice of just paying for what they use. So all this offers more options for people, but the CRTC seems to be somewhat bogged down. And the feeling is that Justin Trudeau in the last election talked about telecom prices coming down by 25%. That was part of his, his mandate. But they don't have a plan to do that. And it, it's not going to happen until the Liberal government figures out how they're going to actually fulfill this promise. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, when it when it comes to that kind of thing, my experience is the only way for a consumer is uh, if you're with Rogers and you don't like the price and you tell them, I'm going to switch to Bell if you don't fix this, um, that usually gets their attention and the opposite if you're a Bell customer. Oh, true. But in my research, a lot of... Um People hate negotiating with phone companies. They just find it demoralizing and intimidating, and particular people who are somewhat older. And uh, it's like discrimination against them because they don't feel like negotiating and they just take the, what they're offered. So I always tell people, get your, you know, your, your son or your grandson who loves this kind of thing to do it for you because they eventually do cave in if you sound like you're determined to leave. Well, yeah, and it's also a matter of uh, how long do you want to stay on the line till your turn comes up with their call center, which is probably even longer now in the in the pandemic. Yeah, and assume that you're not going to get disconnected in the middle of it. Um, so, Dr. Webb, uh, you've, you've outlined all the various uh, hurdles that it has to uh, pass, and the Conservatives, uh, it looks like uh, they're going to uh, really uh, put it uh, under a microscope. Uh, but uh, do you believe the uh, assurances for consumers or do you think, yeah, they, they'll, they, it, it will get approved one way or another and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the consumers will pay the price? Well, if past experience is anything to go on, probably in some form or another, the merger will be uh, approved. Really, what is going to be interesting is the conditions that apply to that uh, takeover uh, and um, how the competing or balancing of interests between, on the one hand, uh, the need for uh, low prices has to be uh, reconciled with the need for investment uh, very significant billions of dollars of investment in the communications infrastructure of Canada so that all people in Canada have more or less equal access to what is rapidly becoming uh, a essential uh, product that every consumer has in Canada, and that is your smartphone and, and your your Wi-Fi package, your internet package. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Ellen, um, mm-hmm. you know, bottom line, what should Conservatives be doing? And also, what do you think about the politics of it? Because it looks like basically every party has an interest in um, making sure that consumers are protected. I mean, the Liberals made lowering the bills a promise, and you would have thought that they would have done something to make that happen before the next election. Yeah, but um, the Liberals also have a, a, a stake in trying to increase the uh, availability of broadband internet across Canada. We still have a rural-urban divide and not enough people, especially those who are now living at their country homes all year round in COVID, are finding that they're Internet access is very limited, it's slow, and it, it doesn't have enough data. So they have to build out those networks, and they rely on those bigger companies with the deep pockets to do the building of the infrastructure. So they might be trying to balance both of those issues. And at the same time, there's new technologies coming around. There's 5G on uh, the, uh, the the network and so on. And uh, the Globe and Mail has a, an editorial today or a, an article by a professor who says that under the Competition Act, there's an efficiencies argument. And if you can show that the merger increases the efficiencies in the industry, which this might, uh, because you'll have, a, uh, you know, Rogers will be much more the competitor to Bell and right up there in terms of size, that uh, they can do that even if it doesn't uh, protect consumers. So it is like many 
public things uh, balancing act, and we have to see what will happen. But I think this probably means that we as consumers should get out there and make our voices heard and say we don't want this to happen or we don't want the fourth largest wireless player to be uh, swallowed up. We want them to be spun off as part of the deal. Hmm. Um, Dr. Webb, what would you like to leave us with? Well, uh, as in all of these sorts of situations, we can just address the particular issue on the table. So this particular uh, purchase, uh, proposed purchase, or what we can do is we can go with a more fundamental approach, which is to revisit the Competition Act, the Competition Bureau's approach to the Competition Act, the CRTC's approach to regulation of telecommunications, and the whole issue of foreign ownership um, in a much more broad way so that we're not uh, just dealing with these things on an ad hoc uh, way one at one at a time. That's where we're at now. And there seems to be an appetite for a revisiting of that nature. Whether or not it'll be done in time to have any real impact on this particular situation, it's difficult to say at this point. Okay. Thank you both, Ellen Roseman and Dr. Kernahan Webb. Appreciate your time. Our pleasure. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, so, again, it's very hard to be an independent anything these days. And if you want your independent grocery store or whatever to continue, uh, you've got to make your voice heard as a consumer. Uh, because once we get into these behemoth companies, we don't have a lot of power there. Uh, with that note, let's take a break. When we come back, we will be talking to Charlie Angus, the NDP ethics critic. The We Charity scandal is on our radar again when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The We Charity scandal is back on the agenda. The Kilberger brothers testified before the Ethics Committee earlier this week after initially refusing to appear. You probably heard our coverage, and they were certainly on the offensive, attacking the politicians and accusing them of deliberately, deliberately ruining we for political reasons. And as a result of that, kids lost out. They singled out ethics critic, NDP ethics critic, Charlie Angus, and he joins me now. Hello, Charlie. Hey, how are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm so, good. I'm good. So uh, did it surprise you that you were kind of personally attacked in that way? Well, it was a pretty bizarre experience being that, you know, the week over the the two weeks leading up, they were refusing to come to committee. They were saying they were going to defy a legal summons. Uh, They were saying they had lawyers out there talking about, you know, potential police investigations and CRA and how it would put them into, you know, jeopardy. And then we got there. It didn't seem to be any police investigation ongoing. So what was all that drama about? Uh, They certainly targeted me. They were saying how unfair it was and how mean we were. But the minute they began their testimony, they actually launched a website, the 101 falsehoods that Charlie Angus apparently said. I was thinking like... I missed that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you missed it. It's, it's, It's pretty... I didn't read it all, but it's pretty strange. And the issue here is that this is a charity, a children's charity, that we had to issue four legal summons for their leadership to come and explain what was up. And this was about $912 million of taxpayers' money that could have ended up going to this organization. So to have them say that this was some kind of witch hunt and have their lawyers say that it was outrageous that partisan politicians were uh, you know, going after private citizens, we are talking about spending of public money, an enormous amount of public money that was not put out for contract, that nobody else had to bid on. So, you know, uh, come and answer the questions. Instead, we got this really wild, dramatic show of attempting to make them innocent victims and me this terrible ogre who's orchestrated the attack on on the children. It's it just I I just don't think it. it 
it landed what they thought it would. I'm going to give the numbers out again in case people have a comment. Uh, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'm talking to NDP ethics critic Charlie Angus uh, about uh, that fairly astonishing testimony from the Kilberger brothers a couple of days ago. Uh, they really went on the attack. Now, I thought they came off entitled, but some of the words uh, describing that from other people that I heard, including uh, repellent, I mean, I I don't know what they think they looked like doing that. Well, the issue is, at the end of the day, is that they built um, this uh, an empire. Uh, there's multiple corporations, multiple massive real estate holdings. You know, they, they it's all contingent on this sort of great work they're doing in Kenya, which is all fine. But they made a decision at one point to really embed themselves with the Trudeau government. They were so part of the developing of the Trudeau brand, uh, Trudeau appearing at their events, their, their work with all the key cabinet ministers. So for them to come in and say they were politically naive and this was somehow partisan attack on them, it doesn't, it doesn't really ring true. If you are going to tie yourself to the government of the day, if you're going to tie yourself to the prime minister and his family and hire family members, and then you're going to try and get access to you know, upwards of 900, nearly a billion dollars of taxpayers' money, you've got to expect the people are going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, how did this all happen? Were you registered to lobby? Were other groups asked to, uh, to, com- to compete on the bid as well? Um, how did you get these meetings with the key ministers? And when you can't give straight answers or when the answers you give contradict what's in the documents, then I think people are going to say, come on, guys, like, this is not adding up. And that, I thought this was an opportunity for them to, to answer the discrepancies that have come because of the documents that we have. But instead, it, was, it turned into, I think, quite the show. It it certainly was quite the show. Do you think that the whole issue? What's the point of uh, dealing with this yet again? Well, part of it is is that we've we've tried to get this committee study finished since last summer. We had the prime minister on the eve of us getting the five thousand pages of documents. The prime minister shut parliament down in the middle of a pandemic. He shut parliament down, and I and everyone know that this was because the, the we testimony was very corrosive. We came back in the fall. We had the liberals at our committee actually filibuster and shut down both the finance committee and the ethics committee for, for uh, meeting after meeting. And we finally got the liberals to agree, let's just finish off the study. We have an obligation to get this report to parliament. And part of that was we need to get the Kielberger brothers back uh, and the key members of their organization because the documents that we've obtained don't match the previous testimony. Let's get this, ask them the questions, let them clarify the record, then we can prepare the report. And then we got into this whole thing of them um, saying that they might defy a legal summons and that their lawyers got involved and then turn it into this big media show uh, leading up to what happened on Monday. We've still got to get this report done. It's Canadians are expecting a report to Parliament. And I'm you know, I don't care how mean they think I am. We're going to get that report done. Do you think that Canadians are still concerned about it? I mean, in its time, it was top of mind. It was a scandal. Uh, but uh, do you think it's still top of mind? Well, it's it's an outstanding issue of how did the Kielberger brothers get these meetings uh, with Minister Morno, Minister Chagger. How were they in the driver's seat of what could have been upwards of a $912 million spending of taxpayers' money? That's a staggering amount of money. So that's, that, those are questions that have to be asked. But I think what happened uh, since December is a number of other allegations have come forward, very, very serious allegations through the Fifth Estate, uh, Bloomberg, the International Financial Journal, looking at questions of donor manipulation, how the money's being spent in Kenya. Uh, I think that's certainly put the Kielberger operation very much um, in defensive mode. They did not want those issues to be raised. But I think given the questions of due diligence and the fact that these articles and these journals are standing by their allegations, 
these are fair questions for the media and the public as well. Well, so it was... They had it, an opportunity to answer those questions. Well, I mean, uh, when it came to the donor, Reed Cowan, who made a big donation uh, to build a school in memory of his son who died and found out that the plaques had been switched and, and we had these reports from former staffers saying that the, the plaques were switched more than once that, you know, there would be a, a big kind of cleanup prep operation when donors came to visit and, and then it would be over. I mean, that, and, and the Keel brothers answer, the Keelbergers answer was, uh, yes, uh, that shouldn't have happened. We have no idea how it happened and, and we'll look into it. Yeah, I that their answers is we know that it happened twice. Well, it's because there's a story in Fifth Estate, there's a story in Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg says multiple donors have grievances. I don't know, uh, but I know from the Reed Cowan stories that this wasn't, this didn't just happen. He, they, there was a major effort to build to raise money, and and they said Reed Cowan says that they they were told every ten thousand dollars builds a new school. If they were saying every $10,000 helps the schools we have and it helps all our other programs, that's fine. But if people are being told, you raise money, you build a school, and then they name schools for people, people expect that those names are going to be there, especially when it's memorializing a loved one who died. The idea that the Bloomberg article talks about staff joking that they had Velcro plaques as soon as the donors left, the plaques came down. That, to me, is a breach of faith with the people that you're asking to donate and people donate money from across North American people do great things. And the Kielbergers have inspired people to do really great things, but you've got to be honest with your donors. And again, on Monday we had an opportunity to ask them to explain. I just didn't think, I, I didn't think that the, the answer they gave uh, was, didn't sound to me all that believable. Maybe other people thought it was, but I think they've got a lot of issues to explain about how their operation works. Well, it, and if it's still, everything was murky. They were selling buildings. They're not selling buildings. And the sad part is that there's blowback on other charities. I think it's a big issue for other charities, people who work across the development world who tell me that you, those, those relationships with donors have to be treated with as though they're sacred. Um, and I think of all the young people who donate. You want them to believe that they can change the world. And that's one of the powers that the Kielbergers brothers had. They inspired young people. You can change the world. So if you're going to change the world, you can't make people feel cynical afterwards about it. And, uh, you know, that, that you're a victim of a political witch hunt when you're very tied to the top powerful people in the country. You're tied to a, uh, a program that went off the rails very quickly. And it was always this issue of, they called it keel math, you know, in one of the articles about the Kielberger brothers' claims of numbers. is like how how our parliamentary committee destroyed the dreams of thousands of children and all the thousands of schools that'll never, you know, work with them again and all the thousands of kids in Africa. It's like, come on, guys. Like, you pitched this program. It went off the rails. The Canada Summer Student Grant went off the rails as soon as it was announced. It wasn't really thought out. And that's we got to keep getting back to. How did these guys get this deal? Why was questions of due diligence should have been asked, not asked? Um, and let's get beyond the drama that this is somehow a political witch hunt. These are questions that taxpayers need answers to. End of story. End of story. And that is all the time we have for this. Thank you so much, Charlie Angus. Anytime. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, uh, before we take a break, I'm going to take a call from Pat, who's been waiting very patiently. He wants to talk about our first item, which is the consolidation in the food industry. Hi, Pat. Yes, let me. But I want to say Charlie Angus has hit it on the head. He's got to dig into this. There's something wrong going on. Otherwise, the Gilbergers wouldn't be acting so defensively. So I'll leave that one with that. But uh, your comment with regard to the uh, grocery stores, uh, I was on the board of Second Harvest, which is a food charity, for many years. And Loblaws were fabulous, absolutely gave us great amount of help. I wrote to the owners of Sobeys five times. They would not respond. And I talked to the people in the store where I shop over in uh, off Laird. And they were telling me about the food that was being thrown out. 
And so, sorry, uh, I may still shop at Sobeys, but I don't think they've got a good corporate culture. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of where Sobeys is, and they're headquartered in the Maritimes, and uh, I think they probably do their good works in the Maritimes. And it's true, um, you know, I said I wasn't that fond of Loblaws. I remember when I was involved with the food bank, they were very good with the food bank. Right, but I, I mean, I tried and I tried a number of backdoor ways to get to these people. They would not respond, and yet the people in the store were telling me about the food that they were throwing out. So if this is heard by somebody who says, oh, maybe we should do something about it, that would be great, because I don't shop at Loblaws, but Loblaws have been fantastic with regard to Second Harvest. So that's uh, my two cents worth. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at some solutions, proposed solutions for rebuilding long-term care. Also, let me just underline uh, some breaking news that you'll hear more about in Bob's News at 1, and that is uh, the scientists advising the Ontario government on the pandemic uh, says that uh, vaccinations should happen in what they call naturally occurring retirement communities, and they think that uh, going to those buildings with large populations of seniors would be a good and equitable thing to do. And a few weeks back, we heard about pilot projects, and th this is the one of the things that has me tearing my hair out. We are so good at pilot projects and not that great at scaling them up where uh, they took mobile, they sent mobile clinics to a few seniors buildings, Toronto seniors buildings. These are people living independently in these buildings and they vaccinated them. So uh, yes, uh, you'll be hearing more about that, but uh, I think they're right. It would be a good idea. Right now we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we'll talk to Donna Duncan of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The devastation in our long-term care homes seems to be stabilizing and some are turning to the question of how to rebuild. Some stakeholders are demanding national standards, not an easy task given that health is a provincial responsibility. Others are focused on the fact that for-profit homes had the worst outcomes and they want to eliminate them. Donna Duncan is CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents 70% of the province's home for profit. She has come out with four recommendations, and she's here now to talk about them. Hello, Donna. Hi, Libby. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this? So, you know, we've, we've crunched a lot of data, and, and because we have the privilege of serving homes across all ownership models, we've had the benefit and insights of looking at the data. and, and I, I will be straight that our data don't bear out the issue around ownership, um, but we recognize that there are those who, who are just going to disagree, and there are things that we all agree on. And so we really are focused on working with all of our membership uh, members, regardless of ownership, and what are those things we all agree on? And let's let's work on those, because those are the fundamentals. Uh, so stabilizing our health uh, human resources, our staffing pools, expediting the capital redevelopment, looking at standards and performance monitoring and outcomes in a really thoughtful way that that uh, gets us to better quality care and outcomes rather than just uh, looking at sort of punitive inspections and and compliance. Let's look at what are we measuring and and how do we get quality? And then uh, let really me let build. let me jump in on on that one for a minute because that's yeah. something that uh, many many people underline. And uh, what they're saying is that a big problem part of the problem is that there's no enforcement, there's no consequence. Uh, first of all, the inspections are pretty you know scarce on the ground now. And the homes get a warning about it. But also, even if they're in violation, there's no consequence. Things don't get fixed. So uh, what is the punitive aspect that you think isn't useful? There, there doesn't seem to be a punitive aspect. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's, that really is a good point it, because we've got a process that doesn't actually correct things. And so how do we move to something that's more about quality improvement? And what are, what are some of the aspects if, if you're not able to meet the, the, the quality standards? And what are the right quality standards? And, and then let's focus on how we correct them, how are we going to fix them, and what are the consequences if people don't? Um, uh, let, let, let me just, you know, again, let's try to take a, a real-world example and uh, I'm, I'm blanking on it. one of the recent uh, sites of the outbreak. They had violations from uh, just, uh, you know, uh, six weeks or something before. This is before the second wave. And there were infection control problems. So what would have been different? I'm, uh, are, are you saying that it, the 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 citation should have had exactly what they had to do. I, I mean, I didn't look at the exact document, but barring enforcement, how would have the, that have been better? Yeah, yeah. For, for, from our view, what this process should be is when the inspectors come in, when they see violations, uh, don't just record the violation, actually uh, speak to the people who, who done the thing wrong, correct in real time, and speak to the staff before you leave about what the plan is to make sure that that never happens again. Rather than going in, seeing it, recording it, and then leaving, and then in issuing an order. Let's, let's, let's have a much more collaborative approach where we're fixing things in real time and making sure that before the inspectors leave, they know what the home is going to do to make sure that, that the infraction doesn't happen again. But is that really, I mean, as an example, <clears throat> sorry, in Quebec, before the second wave, they said, we're going to put infection control experts in each home, and that made a difference. If if we're not doing that or requiring homes to do that, and there's certainly an expense to that, um, you know, why should it be on the inspectors who don't necessarily have that kind of a level of training? It just seems well, like somebody else is going to pay for that particular piece of human uh, resources. Well, we've been we've been asking for that that uh, human resource. We've certainly since the spring we've said let let's make sure that every single home has dedicated infection prevention and control expertise. We also called for all inspectors to be trained and educated and have some sort of certification in IPAC as well so that it can be a more of a collaborative process. Uh, you know, we, we need to lift our homes up. We need to, you know, when, when people come in for the inspections, it's about the failure of the home. How do we correct those failures? Speak about the pathway to success, because we are talking about people's lives. Uh, but the, the tone and approach, we need, we need to be uh, working together in partnership to make things better, because if we do that together, then, then it's going to be better care for residents. That, that is the pathway to better care. Um, ask about your, number one, stabilize human resources now. So the province recently released a timetable for increasing numbers of personal support workers and, and the pay and, and, and ramping up to four hours of care. A lot of critics say it's, it's kind of too little too late. What's, what's your view of that? How does this recommendation stand in light of what the province is recommending? Well, we've got to act now, and we are where we are today. Uh, we're really encouraged uh, by this new announcement. Uh, we know that the government has announced uh, they're going to fund the tuition for 6,000 new PSW placements in our community colleges across Ontario. Uh, they're going to pay for uh, work placements for those for those students and support the tuition of the 2,000 PSW students who are already in the system. Uh, we need more PSWs, uh, not just to to offset those who've left the sector over the last 12 months. Our, our, our staff are decimated. Their morale is just diminished, and their mental health and well-being is, is, is diminished. And we know that the work is heavy. Uh, we need new supports in, and uh, being able to bring in these students over the next uh, before the calendar year, and it's going to be profoundly important for us. And it'll be important to to helping us get that increase to, of where I care much more quickly as well. Um, you talk about expediting the capital redevelopment program. I mean, it, it, uh, that's how do you expedite? <clears throat> sorry, the building 
process? Um, yeah, that that's a great that's a great question. Back in two thousand, the last time, so twenty one years ago was the last time we had a government of Ontario that moved forward a program. And what they did is they they hired somebody whose sole job was to report to cabinet directly to cabinet, but who had the job of uh, problem solving for all the projects so that they could actually get through both the provincial and the municipal planning processes as quickly as possible. So somebody who had had that accountability, and we're, we're um, a, a big fan of that approach. It worked then, it can work today, because we know that there the timelines for, for building uh, can take as many as three or four years, depending on the municipal uh, and uh, and provincial planning processes. And, and we need to we need to prioritize the replacement of these three and four bed homes uh, that have to be a priority across Ontario. Have you uh, costed these recommendations? I'm assuming that it's all taxpayer funded. Uh, no, actually, for the redevelopment, uh, I don't think people realize uh, the homes, whether you're a nonprofit home or a private home, the, the upfront development of a home, the home has to own their own property. No, I, uh, I understand that. I mean, for your four recommendations oh, altogether. Oh, recommendations. Yeah. Not, not entirely. We're working with the government right now in, in trying to figure out what, what the math looks like. Uh, it's not cheap. Uh, but we believe our seniors are, are worth it. And quite honestly, we haven't had meaningful investments in our sector for the last 30 years. Uh, the government to date, uh, and we have seen uh, meaningful investments through COVID. So we've had about $5 billion either invested already or committed in, in investments. So it's $1.75 billion on capital, $1.9 billion towards that for care uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're going to need more on capital and we're going to need more on staffing uh, because it's, it's going to be about getting more people to work in long-term care and making sure that we're paying them properly and that we have more full-time staff as well. And, and you're saying that, that the need to uh, have profit for shareholders isn't getting in, uh, in the way of any of that? Yeah, all of our homes are, are, are regulated and, and funded exactly the same. Uh, what are uh, the, the way the, the financing works for those, those for-profit homes? So our nonprofits will fundraise and they'll get mortgages and they'll still use uh, funds to pay off their mortgages. Our private homes will get mortgages and they will also borrow money from other people. Donna, that was, sorry to interrupt, we're almost out of time. That was yeah. a yes or no question. <laughs> I, 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 wish, I wish, you know, no one profits from care, and nobody should profit from care at all. Okay, thank you so much, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Libby. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.